It's Isaiah chapter 40 today, beginning in verse 12, and I'll read that as we move along. In 1952, J.B. Phillips wrote a book with one of the great titles of all time, Your God is Too Small. uh, 25 years later, 25 years later, Edward Welch wrote my favorite book on the issue of fear of man, and he titled it, When People Are Big and God is Small. These titles hit on an important truth. Our view of God determines our view of everything else. When God is not powerful enough, loving enough, wise enough, trustworthy enough, sovereign enough, then God himself will not be enough for your life. A small view of God is why we fear Doubt, grumble, lack contentment, chase after control, and fall for all the lies of the not-gods around us. Our God is too small. Syria, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, they would all underestimate God. Perhaps that's not very surprising. But you know what? So do God's people. Judah, now and in exile, her God is too small. And how do you think God responds to this consistent and widespread underestimation? By inviting us to know him better. This morning, I'd like for us to consider how closely tied this invitation is to the mission of the church in the world, to what should be our mission. All human-created views of God are inadequate. They're not even close to God as he really is. These gods of our own making are not enough. They're not enough for secure and satisfied lives. So in response, God, in his word, and most perfectly in the word made flesh, invites us to know him as he really is. He draws near to his people, uniting us to his son by faith, and giving his own spirit to dwell within us. The mission of his church in the world, then, is this. Knowing the reality of the one true God. And by his grace, we extend that invitation to know him to a lost and dying world. Some of you may remember last summer when Bill March preached for us soon after the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe and Casey. And he told us then that because this world's answers for the questions that matter are so unsatisfying, we should expect in the years ahead to see a lot of damaged people coming in the doors of the church. Many have been nearly destroyed by the world's lies, and they're looking for anyone who can help them. The answers they will find when they walk in our doors 
depend entirely on our appreciation for the glory and beauty of God. Let me say that another way. The God they will meet when they walk into our church is the God we claim to know. And sadly, I think there are a lot of churches that a lost person could walk into where the God they are offered is one far less than the God of Scripture. I think the lost can meet a lot of church-going people with the same deficient view. In workplaces, neighborhood associations, and school groups, there are plenty of people who have spent their lives in and around the church And yet the God they know is not substantial with the weight of glory, but is a flimsy, is as flimsy as the inconsequential role he plays in their lives. Here, it must not be so. Our church needs to be, as one pastor put it, wonderfully heavy with the felt presence of God. A place where people see and sense that God is beautiful with a beauty they have never known. And for this to happen, we need to know God as he really is. And this isn't about mere academic knowledge. This is experiential awareness, the conviction that God is God. Isaiah is trying to help us understand. First, see the greatness of God through and in and over creation. He introduces the theme in verse 12, who has measured the waters? And he picks it up in earnest in verse 21. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Greater than everything on earth and greater than everything in the heavens, God is God. Creation reveals his transcendent power and creativity. At times we think we're so big and he's so small, but we're mistaken. Isaiah wants us to see reality from God's point of view. He made all of it. There's no power, no glory, no beauty that is not derived from his power, his glory, and his beauty. Kids, when Pastor Stewart was here a few months ago for the conference, he told us to think about God's word and Jesus, God's word made flesh as both a microscope and a telescope. A microscope takes something that appears very small and makes it big. And a telescope takes something that is far away and makes it near. And that's what Isaiah is doing here for us. Because what we need most is to understand God as he is and not simply as we've imagined him to be. 
The universe seems massive from our perspective. From God's, it's a creation. Something he made, something smaller than the one who made it. When we were in Hawaii several nights, we went outside to look at the stars. Anywhere that you've been without much light pollution, you've seen the same thing. You couldn't count them if you wanted to. But verse 26 speaks of God calling them forth one by one by their names. It would be like on the ski slopes this week. One of you children picking up a handful of snow. And we all know conceptually that it's made up of individual snowflakes. But can you imagine pulling them out one by one and appreciating what is unique about each snowflake in that handful? It seems too big. But God is up to the task. One author wrote, the next time you're tempted to think that the world is bigger than God, remember verse 15's drop of a bucket and verse 22's grasshoppers. And if you ever feel so small that you wonder if God really cares about you personally, remember that he knows the name of every star. Verse 26, and your name as well. You see, if you look at God through your circumstances, he will seem small and far away. But if by faith you look at your circumstances through God, the microscope and the telescope of his word, God will draw very near and his glory will be revealed to you. We've talked so much in Isaiah about fear and about pride. And this awareness of the weightiness of God, his holiness and his beauty, his glory, this is the antidote to both. If you see God rightly, you will see yourself and your circumstances rightly. And if you see God rightly, others will see that in you. The God you know is the God you're inviting them to meet. Did you notice this morning, I, my attention caught it because I knew what I was preaching, but as Stephen read Third John, there was a strange juxtaposition in there because it said that those who do good are from God. But what did it say about those who do evil? It said they have not seen God. The antidote to our pride, the antidote to our fear is to see God. That is the way of righteousness. Isaiah also draws attention to the perfect wisdom of God. That's verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The gods that we create in our imagination, they always end up a lot like us, don't they? But God is very unlike us. He is appropriately self-glorifying, after all. He is God, yet he is not self-serving. He is just. He is wise, but his wisdom is a facet of his being, not something that he's learned. 
God is not taught by books or experience. What is true is true because he knows it. What is just is just because it's what he does. Think about how different this is from the prevailing form of wisdom where my truth has replaced truth. Where justice is defined by feelings and knowledge is redefined and rewritten if it's found to be inconvenient. I don't want to scold you. I guess I do because I will. It is troubling how many Christians don't know the things they should know or are not willing to stand firm in those things in public. I'm not talking about being a culture warrior or being combative around your family and co-workers. I'm talking about having the courage to say you're certain about something because it comes from Scripture and knowing that thing that ought to be said because God has showed it to us in his word. There's a great misconception in the church today where uncertainty is confused with humility. Uncertainty, either because you do not know or because you will not admit to know, is not humility. There are many who do not like what God has to say. And there are many who will haughtily take God's words and choose to weaponize them for their own purposes. Don't do that. But there need to be more Christians, more of us, who will patiently, winsomely, yet consistently say, here is what God has said. People around us may know that we're Christians because they see us pray over our meals or because we include church answering the question, what did you do this weekend? But do they also know that we're Christians because the answers we give to life's questions come from God and not from the imaginations of men? They don't know it, but we ought to. The only way we will ever make progress on the real problems of injustice in this world are through those answers. The reconciliation that needs to take place in humanity can only happen here. The world systems, and far more importantly, the hearts of men and women will not be changed by slogans and scolding. They will be changed when God teaches us the path of justice and we follow it. Especially this weekend, it's evident that many have forgotten The reason Dr. King could be so confident that the arc of history bends toward justice is because he was confident that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Isaiah also shows us the substantiveness, the, if I can coin a word, substantialness of God's glory versus the weightlessness of the nation's. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. These are some of the biggest categories we can conceive of. 
nations, kings, kingdoms. They feel so weighty, so big to us. It seems as though if anyone could resist God, if anyone could thwart his purposes, these are big enough to do it. But the only worth they have, the only purpose they can serve is that which he gives them. Isaiah uses the example of Lebanon. We sing in the Psalms sometimes about the mighty cedars of Lebanon. These impressive forests were known the world over. And and Isaiah imagines what would happen if you clear cut all of the cedars of Lebanon? And what if you stacked up all of the wood to make an altar before the Lord? And then he adds, what if you slaughtered every animal in the kingdom and put them atop that burning altar as a sacrifice for God? Can you even imagine the largest, hottest fire you've ever seen Thousands of acres make up this altar with hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of animals as a sacrifice before the Lord. And how would that glory compare to God's? Isaiah says it would not suffice. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is why some of us struggle with second commandment issues, with with, uh, movies or TV or plays that depict God or the life of Jesus. It's not that we're trying to be difficult. It's that it's very hard. In fact, impossible, scripture would say, to, to capture the glory of Christ on a television or a movie screen. And and this is what we mean about our churches and our lives needing to have some sense of the weightiness of God's glory. How big is God in our worship? Do you think about the the words I read in the call to worship and in the invocation this morning, the words Stephen quoted in his prayer? How big? Big is God in our worship? Is he that big in our lives? Is his wisdom that great? Is his good news that beautiful? We talk to people every day. Every day we have conversations with people as if politics, sports, and entertainment really matter. We get animated and passionate. We know all the details and statistics, celebrity culture, British royals, the next big NBA trade, the lines on the college and the NFL games. And I'm right there with you. And hear me carefully. I'm not critiquing our interest or passion in those things in a vacuum. I'm simply asking If the people around us know that we are as captivated by God's beauty and glory as we are by politics, sports, and entertainment, are those things as real in our lives for those who are watching? Isaiah next shows us the reality of God versus all idols. Verse 18. 
To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts it for silver chains. He is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. I laughed out loud when I read this this week. I love this pastor's description of this verse. He says, Isaiah doesn't criticize idol making. He just describes it. But description is all he has to do. Idol making is too stupid to require comment. To us, our idols make sense. But can't we easily see the foolishness in the idols of others? By the way, mine aren't idols. They're just things that are very important to me. They're the means by which I know my family will be secure. They're the means by which my life can finally satisfy me. Just a little more control and safety and recognition and accomplishment and marital fulfillment and impressive children and vocational respect. They're the means by which I can get just a little more of the things that matter. They're not my idols. I'll be brief because we've said it so many times in Isaiah already. The reason these idols cannot make you secure and the reason these idols cannot satisfy is that they are not God. They are creations, not the creator. And we need to ask ourselves, especially in the context of unbelievers looking on, by observing my life, what God am I inviting them to meet? Isaiah's vision of God is true. He is rightly captivated by the glory and the beauty of God. Isaiah's God is not ethereal and insubstantial. He is heavy with glory. He makes a difference in the universe and in every human life to which he draws near. And when we start to share Isaiah's vision of God, another question rather naturally arises. Well, then why would that kind of God receive me? Why would that God receive any of us? And you know what? These unbelievers who will come through our doors will have the same question. They're beat up and bruised by the world. They feel ruined. They have no strength left to offer God. They've gone their own way for a long time, sometimes in extreme and outspoken ways. God has been insignificant to them. And suddenly, it's their own insignificance that's clear, and the guilt and shame of that are overwhelming. Why would any such people expect to be invited into fellowship with God? But remember... Isaiah is speaking to just such people. Future Judah in exile. People who are beaten down and discouraged and filled with regrets. God's promises, even if they suddenly became real to them, feel destined to belong to someone else, not to me. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint away and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Are you weary this morning? Can you think of those in your lives outside these walls who have nothing left to give? Their strength has run out. This is the grace of God for his people. It's not the kind of heavy that weighs us down, but it is very much the kind of substantial that can actually change a human life. You know when you've spent a little extra money to get the nicer version of something? The nicer pocket knife or tool or baking dish? A really well-made book. It, it doesn't seem worth the extra money if it's too light, does it? It needs to have some heft, some, some substance to it. It's not just our perspective of God's glory that's anemic. So too is our understanding of his grace. Every day, several times a day, we should find ourselves almost surprised to see and know how gracious God is to us. Forgiveness of sin, again. Power to overcome temptation that actually works. Wisdom for life's trials. Tenderness in life's relationships, these God gives us by his grace, not occasionally, but every day. Not doled out sparingly, but poured out liberally. If this isn't your experience in day-to-day life, if this isn't what others around you see, your God is too small. Whether you're imagining him based on your idols or your shame or approval from the world, from here I could not say, but I can say that your God is too small. Because a life that knows the weight of God's glory and beauty shows it. Others see it. That's what it means to be a disciple, to witness to the glory of another The God you know is the God you invite them to meet. So come. Know God for who he is. Receive him as he offers himself. Learn the wisdom he's known from all eternity. Find out the path of justice that flows from his nature. Discover more and more of the grace that flows from his generous heart. For our God, is God. Glory to him now and forever. Amen.